The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Well, good morning, church. It's an honor to stand before you this morning. I want to thank Austin for leading us in worship. Um, I'm so blessed to be able um, to serve a church that loves to sing of the glory of God. I'm so blessed to be able to join with you and actually be able to sit down and literally join in with you as we sang. And I'm thankful for Austin and his his desire to see the church magnify the great name of Jesus Christ. Amen. That's right. In the song, Jesus, Thank You, I I saw, I just wanted to to bring our attention back to this. In 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verse 57, it says, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks be to God who gives us our victory in Jesus Christ. So as we come to this time this morning, We turn our gaze towards Jesus, and we don't let our gaze wander anywhere else. So, if you if you're joining with us this morning for the first time, we've been doing uh, we've been going through a series called "The Church Gathered for Glory," and we've taken a a short break out of our series going through Exodus, and we're we're unpacking the truths about the church. The first week we came together, and Scott taught on the church defined. What is the church? Last week. Greg spoke on church attendance and the heart. And this week, this morning, I've entitled this sermon, The Gathering as a Glimpse of Glory. Let's be clear, this morning, as we talk about our worship gathering, as we talk on the subject of worship, I'm not talking just about the musical portion of our worship service. So many times when we talk about worship, it's really easy for us to think of, oh, worship, that's what they do on Sunday morning with the instruments. But no, we're talking today as we come around the Word of God in Revelation 5, and we're unpacking what our worship gatherings should be a picture of, what our worship gatherings should be like. Our, gather, our entire gathering, the songs that we sing, the offerings, the prayers, the sermon, times where we confess our sin before God, times when we are assured that our pardon is complete in Christ, when we, when we gather, our gathering is a rehearsal for what we will join in with throughout eternity. So church, today we open our Bibles to Revelation 5. If you turn to Revelation 5 with me. Throughout Scripture, when it comes to the subject of worship, or rather the worship of God, we see over and over again this this rhythm of revelation, God revealing himself to the people and the people's response to his revealing. We see this in Exodus. And as Scott continues to walk through, um, we, we will see God reveal himself and we see the response. In Isaiah 6, if you were to look at Isaiah 6, you see Isaiah's encounter with the holy God. And first of all, he's struck with his His unworthiness. He comes encounter with the holiness of God. He sees his unworthiness. He cries, woe is me. 
So the, God is revealed, and there is a response. And in Revelation 4, as we've, if, as we've read and as we've sung about, and here also in Revelation 5. In our worship gatherings, this divine mystery and human response should be the very catalyst of our praise. Because our gatherings are, and what we say sometimes, are rehearsals for glory. Rehearsals for what will be happening around the throne for all eternity. We should look to the scripture to see what exactly is at the heart of God honoring worship. Bob Coughlin in a sermon on this passage states, At the heart of God honoring worship is the exaltation of Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. So as we open the word of God this morning, it is my hope that we see and look to the life, the death, and the resurrection of our magnificent Savior to be the means of our worship, to be the content of our worship, and to be the sole and only object of our worship. All right, let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning, and we ask that you would do a work in our hearts. Lord, as we read your word, God, I pray that the Spirit of God would do something that I can't do in my, my speaking. Lord, I, can, I can get up here and I can preach the most eloquent sermon, or I can preach the worst sermon. But I cannot do what only the Spirit of God can do. And so, Spirit of God, we ask, we beg of you to move in this place this morning. We beg of you to do work in our hearts. We beg of you to help us realize that Jesus is the only thing that we can cling to. The world around us crumbles, but Jesus stays the same. And because of that, Jesus is the means, the content, and the object of our worship as we gather. We ask this in your perfect and holy name. Amen. This morning as we continue, if you'll open your Bible, if you're not already there, to Revelation 5. We'll start in verse 1 and we'll, we'll continue through verse 14. Let's read this together, church. Then I saw in the right hand of him who is seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which the prayers of the saints 
And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. From every tribe and every language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. The voice of many angels. Numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. Saying with a loud voice. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. To receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and, under, and in the sea. And all that is in them saying <clears throat> to him who sits on the throne. And to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, and fell down and worshiped. Amen, church. If you're taking notes, our first point this morning is in our gatherings, Jesus is the means of our worship. So as we look at this, let me ask you a question. What, what, what would it be like if there were no Jesus? John 14, 6 says, Jesus said to them, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Church, without Jesus, there is no hope. Without Jesus, there is no way. Without Jesus, there's no truth. Without Jesus, the world would be meaningless, and there simply would be no significance to anything that happens. And his commentary on Revelation, which was a huge help to me in preparing the sermon, James Hamilton says, Without Jesus, everything would be a hellish, howling wasteland. The world would be a pagan wilderness full of meaningless, meaningless suffering and pain where might really would make right. There would be no justice. There would be no righteousness. There would be no vindication and no mercy. The world would be nothing but an awful, terrifying, trackless labyrinth in which we would all be lost. Well, that weigh in on you. What would it be without Jesus? As we can see here, we need Jesus. Jesus lived the righteous life that no one else could live. Not not anyone. Jesus fully obeyed God. Jesus fully obeyed the Father and his demands. Jesus fully obeyed God the way that God deserves to be obeyed. Jesus took the punishment that we deserve and made available to us only the righteousness that he had. We need him not only for our personal salvation, church, but we need him because he's the hope of the world. By his death and resurrection, Jesus has taken control of history. And I mean, that in itself, that amazing truth should lead us to extravagant worship of the Lamb. But we get into our text here in Revelation 5, verse 1. John sees the Father on the throne, and his right hand there was a scroll. 
it's maybe easier for us to kind of read through this and glance at it and go, oh, scroll, okay. Well, this is not any ordinary scroll. This scroll was written on front and back, and this scroll was a picture of, if you go to Ezekiel 2, verses 2, 9 through chapter 3, 3, this scroll symbolized the message that he was to deliver to God's people. Ezekiel was commanded in in that passage in Ezekiel to eat the scroll in preparation for his proclamation. But unlike Ezekiel, John here sees an obstacle. John sees, as the scripture shows us, that this scroll is sealed. It's sealed with wax and impressed with the author's insignia and just... Imagine, use your imaginations with me here. I thought about bringing a scroll, but I really, I couldn't do that. So, but the scroll he sees is sealed with wax and impressed with the author's insignia as a token of the author's authenticity. And this scroll could not be sealed until the seals were broken. And these seals themselves symbolize its owner's authority. And these could not be broken without the correct authorization. So, this leads us to ask the question, well, what's so important? What's on the scroll? Why was it sealed in this way? What, what, what's the significance of this? Scholars and different commentaries have differing opinions on maybe what was in the scroll, but I think seeing what Jesus does with the seven seals in Revelation 6 and 8, it appears that the writing on the scroll relates to the events that will bring history to its appointed conclusion. God's redemptive plan and the future history of God's creation is what's on the scroll. This reminds us that Jesus is sovereign over all things. In verse 2, it says, And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seal? As John was looking in his vision, as John was looking at the Father with the scroll in his hand, an angel with a mighty voice calls out the question, who is worthy? Who is worthy? See in verse 3, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to take the scroll or to look into it. No one here is worthy to open the scroll that contains God's redemptive plan for history. No one. No one is able to take the scroll. No one is able to break its seals. No one's able to open its contents. Not any creature in all the splendors, splendors of God's universe, all creatures on earth, all creatures under it, no one was worthy. And in Revelation 4, we see John's response to this. John says, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Why does he respond this way? Why is he weeping over the inaccessibility of this content? It's important, church, for us to see here in this passage that John's not merely pitching a fit like the kid you see in the supermarket. John's not going, I'm not getting what I want, so I'm going to pitch a fit. 
John's not, he's not acting as a child here. He desperately wants to know so bad what is in this scroll that, that not knowing God's redemptive plan gives him such grief that he weeps loudly. We've already established from the rest of Revelation, if we read on, what would happen if the scroll was not open? But to kind of give us an idea, I've listed out a couple of things here. In Revelation 5, 9, Jesus would not be worshipped as worthy to open the scroll. And this, this is why John is weeping here. In, in Revelation 5, 9 also, Jesus would not be worshipped as the world's redeemer. There, in 6.10, the martyrs of the faith would not be avenged. In chapters 8, verses 4 and 5, the prayers of the saints would not be answered. In 9.15, God's appointed plan would not come to pass. In chapters 16 through 18, the wicked would not be judged. In 19 and 20, Jesus would not come back. Chapters 21 and 22, Jesus would not reign in glory. Jesus would not reign in the new heavens and the new earth. Before we go on, let's stop and think about what John is doing here. He is weeping at this point because he is so emotionally involved in what is happening. He's concerned that things might not turn out as he hoped they would. Do we ever feel this way? Of course. There's been times in our life when we've had events happen that they're not exactly turning out like we hoped they would. Should make us feel better that John, an author of a book of the Bible, is going through the same thing here. But the resolution to what John feels here is the same resolution that we need. And this comes in where we're going next in verse 5. John's hopeless weeping is overcome by the reality that there is one who is worthy. John's hopeless weeping is overcome by the reality that there is one who has conquered. John's hopeless weeping is overcome by the reality that Jesus has conquered. Verse 5, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. The suspense that we see in verse 4, the sorrow that we sense in verse 4 is as John is weeping because he sees that no one is worthy to open this scroll. The suspense and John's sorrow are broken by the voice of one of the elders answering the angel's question here. Church, Jesus gives us hope. Jesus wipes away our tears. Jesus, as we have sung, is mighty to save. When we were lost in darkness... Lost and truly hopeless, his glorious light appeared. Jesus lives. Jesus here in verse 5 is identified as the lion of the tribe of Judah. 
This reference here reminds us of the way that Jacob blessed Judah in Genesis 49, verses 8 through 12. The comparison of Judah with a lion um, foreshadowing this perpetual royal dynasty from Judah's line. Here we see Jesus is also identified as the root of David. This here recalls the promise in Isaiah 11, 1. Isaiah foresaw a fresh shoot from the stump of David's father, a fruitful branch springing from a root that seemed lifeless and hopeless. It was these reminders of these Old Testament promises that caused John to weep when he thought they might not be fulfilled because the scroll would not be opened. But this one, Jesus, the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered Because he has conquered, he can make known the end of history. And since he has conquered, he can make all God's promises come true. And that's why the elders said, John, weep no more. Weep no more. Surely Judah's fierce lion is the one who is victorious to open the scroll. And take note here, for us, that the elder encourages John not by saying, hey, hey, John, hey, it's not as bad as you think it is, you know. Or, or John, here, take some, take some medicine, it'll, it'll be better. No, he uses the language of the Bible here to announce that Jesus has triumphed and kept God's promises. And for us, we, we look to Jesus when we're discouraged. Hebrews thirteen eight says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He'll never fail. He'll always encourage us. So in our worship gatherings, as we gather, let's be reminded that Jesus is the means by which we worship. Jesus is the means of our worship. No song, no style, no format, no program, It's the means by which we worship. But both personally and corporately, Jesus is the means. Without Jesus, we would have no hope. We would have no basis for rejoicing. We we would be like John before verse 5. But it's through Christ and his work on the cross that we know the Father. It's through Christ and his work on the cross that we can rejoice in the promises that have their yes and amen, Jesus Christ. Again, to, to quote Bob Coughlin, he says, Jesus and his work on the cross is our means of seeing that God's purposes are fulfilled both in history and in our lives. Evil will be vanquished, and God, who will, God will have a people who will worship him forever. Amen. Number two, in our, in our gatherings... Not only is Jesus the means, but Jesus is the content of our worship. Revelation 6 here, And between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain, with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. We see a striking paradox here. The conquering lion, the warrior king of Judah's tribe and David's line, the champion of the people of God appears before John's eyes 
as a lamb standing yet slaughtered. You got to realize here, dead things don't stand. <laughs> they don't. I've, you see a dead animal on the road, it's not standing. Um, dead things don't live. They're dead. The, the striking paradox here is that Jesus lives. The Almighty King overcame all his enemies as his enemies seemingly overcame him. The death of Jesus is the final fulfillment of all the sacrifices of the Old Testament. We see here how Jesus conquered. Well, very, very easily we see that he was slain like a lamb. Jesus is a lion. And you, you think of a lion, you think, you know, royal, dignified, powerful. Maybe the lion king, you know. But we see Jesus also as a lamb. Quiet, submissive, humble, and in this case, slain. So there the lamb stands. Jesus is depicted as the lamb, not because he's this woolly, cute, cuddly little beast. Jesus is depicted, excuse me, he's not depicted as a lamb because he's a woolly little beast. Lambs get slaughtered and that's what Jesus did. Jesus conquered the world by getting killed. Jesus was slaughtered as a sacrifice. God has redefined victory in Christ. If you don't think of a crucified Savior, dead, buried, raised on the third day, then you, then I, then we, we don't know what victory is. So I ask, is this your victory? Again, to quote James Hamilton in his commentary on Revelation, he says, let me assure you, no one was found worthy to open the scroll in John's vision, and it wasn't because you were around yet. You are not worthy to stand before God. Your only hope is to be swept up in the defeat of Jesus' death on the cross so that his resurrection becomes your victory. And church, for this to happen, we have to trust Jesus. We have to trust him. And if we don't trust in him, we will be defeated. The lamb here that's portrayed... And the fact that the lamb had been slain motivates the doxology and the response that we're going to get to in just a minute in verses 9 through 14. But the, slaughtered, the slaughter suffered by the lamb is the way he overcame. His death is the victory that makes him worthy to open the scroll. G.B. Caird says, It's almost as if John were saying to us at one point after another, Wherever the Old Testament says lion, read lamb. Wherever the Old Testament speaks of the victory of the Messiah or the overthrow of the enemies of God, we would remember that the gospel recognizes no other way of achieving these ends than the way of the cross. That's a good word. We see here a couple things about the lamb that may confuse us. The seven horns that we see depicted here, it's a reminder of a picture of strength, that the lamb will come again as the conquering, crink, uh, conquering king. These horns signify his um, supreme power, and this is kind of like the visual equivalent of the title Almighty. The seven eyes mentioned, these show his omniscience, that nothing escapes his notice. 
It also shows his presence with the seven churches. But very simply, the lamb who's pictured here has all power and all knowledge. We get to verse 7. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Hamilton says this is breathtaking audacity. What's happening here? This is, <laughs> excuse me, this is astonishing. We saw in verses 5-3, what? We saw that no one was worthy to open the scroll. We saw that no creature in heaven, no creature on the earth, no creature under the earth was worthy to take the scroll and open it to reveal God's redemptive plan for all of history. But here, Jesus marches up to the Father who is seated on the throne, surrounded by the four living creatures singing that song, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord Almighty, who was and is and is to come, in full view of the 24 elders seated and what does he do? He takes the scroll. Jesus here is taking the very reins of history. Jesus is taking control. Jesus takes the scroll that describes the events of the end where all wrongs will be made right. And we see here, he takes it from the Father, and the Father does not resist. He allows Jesus to receive glory with him, and all of heaven responds by praising Jesus. This here leads us to see two truths about Jesus. Number one, he's the central figure in all humanity. Jesus is the king. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is, in what we looked at in John 14, the way, the truth, and the life. He has taken the scroll and he controls our destiny. Not only does it lead us to see that he's the central figure in all humanity, but Jesus is God of very God. Even if John had simply stated Jesus is God, it would not have portrayed the deity, the very deity of Christ, as simply and clearly as this episode here. Church, this applies to us because heavenly worship centers around what Jesus accomplished. And because heavenly worship centers around what Christ accomplished, so should, when we gather, be centered around Christ and what he has accomplished. This may be the songs we sing. And here at Abner Creek, the songs that we sing are not simply because I sit in my office and go, ah, that sounds good. The songs we sing are chosen to help us see the full view of the character of God displayed in the glory of the salvific work of Jesus on the cross. Cross-centered, Christ-exalting, God-glorifying, heaven-focused, and just a little, that's why we put the verses on the screen under the song. You saw this morning a couple of songs we had did that. We do that to to help us see. And, and as we were worshiping together and we were singing, Jesus, thank you, to be reminded of that verse in 1 Corinthians, that, talking about a catalyst for praise, that led me to see the truth that we were singing about more clearly. So that's why we do some of the things that we do. That's why we structure our gathering the way we do. That's why we come in and we start by giving praise to God because he's worthy, he's God, he's worthy to be praised. 
That's why we give of tithes and offerings. That's why, excuse me, sometimes we sing songs of confession. Lord, I need you. Every hour I need you. That's why we sing songs that assure us that our pardon is complete, is paid for in Christ. Because... Because heavenly worship centers around what Christ accomplished, our worship gathering should as well. Not only is Jesus the means and the content of our worship when we gather, he's the sole object of our worship. And this leads us to our final point. In Revelation 5.8, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. After chapter 4 that we read, we sang about, a legit question for us to ask is, could anything add to the worship in heaven? We see this and we go, man, that's just this beautiful picture of the glory of God on display and all creation worshiping. So, Could it be any better? Actually, it could. Jesus can. Jesus can make that so much better. The appearance of the Lamb standing as though it had been slain with these seven horns of might and these seven eyes of wisdom renews and refreshes the heavenly song that's been going on since chapter 4. God will never cease to provide us with new reasons to praise Him. We've sung about that today too, right? 10,000 reasons for my heart to find. We will see fresh visions of the worth, the magnificence, the majesty, and the glory of God forever. The elders here are holding instruments with which they praise Jesus. And they have the prayers of the saints. It's a reminder that prayer is an implicit praise. When we pray, we're assuming that God is merciful, that he is able, that he is good. And when we pray, we praise God in the very act of prayer. These heavenly worshipers here in this scene present to God, the, the, present to the Lamb the prayers of God's people. In Revelation 5, 9, we get to this. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So what's the significance of this new song? In the history of salvation, new songs were composed to mark or rather celebrate events which we see the Lord providing for or rescuing his people. In several weeks, maybe months, depending on on how we go in Exodus, we're going to get to 15. We're going to see this Red Sea rescue, the song of Moses. We see this song, we see a song like this in Isaiah 42. God promised a future exodus for his imprisoned people. We see this sort of thing in Psalm 96, this new song that will be evoked by the Lord's saving work. The new song here, now sung by the living creatures and the elders, celebrates an exodus, celebrates a rescue that makes all previous rescues pale in comparison. Jesus is worthy of praise because he is able to do what no one else can. 
He is worthy because what he accomplished by his death and resurrection. By his death, he paid the ransom. Jesus paid the ransom for those who were in bondage to sin and deserve to be punished. Jesus is worthy of praise because he has done what no one else could. We get to hear in in the last part of verse 9 where it talks about every tribe and language and people and nation. In the Bible, when we see the number 4, sometimes when we see that, it stands for the whole world. In Isaiah eleven twelve, 12, Revelation 20, it talks about the four corners of the earth. In Zechariah 2, 6, the four winds from the heavens. Four terms here means that Jesus ransomed people for, from everywhere. And the gospel, what we see here, the gospel levels all notions of racial superiority. It's very prevalent in our culture today, and I don't have to go into examples. I think you can get where I'm coming from here. The gospel levels all notions of racial superiority because it declares that all people stand in the same need of a glorious Savior. We get to Revelation 5.10. The song concludes with what Jesus did with those he ransomed. Christ's sacrifice has made it possible for all God's people drawn from the nations of the earth to be both royalty and priests in the new kingdom of God. The saints are corporately a kingdom and individually priests. As God's chosen ones, we serve him in worship and in witness. And through the death of Christ as the final victory over evil, we will be kings serving in Christ serving Christ and authority over his creation. Verse 11. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elder, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands and thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. To this point, the cast of characters that we see in this heavenly drama has included the one on the throne, the lamb. It's included the four living creatures, the 24 elders, and this strong angel who is proclaiming in verse 2. But suddenly, John sees something different here. John sees a vast multitude. The, the word myriad here means 10,000. And the fact that it says myriads and myriads and thousands upon thousands, just get your mind wrapped around this. Ten thousands upon ten thousands upon ten thousands. Like, this makes any gathering of, like, this makes going to a college football game seem like a small number of people compared to what we're seeing here described. Imagine the multitude shouting these words. So imagine the, the largest gathering that you've ever been a part of. Maybe that's a, a sporting event. Maybe that's um, a concert. Just imagine the biggest event you've ever been in triple, quadruple, double, just tons of people. They are proclaiming the worth of the Lamb. They are saying that he is worthy to receive anything that could be given to him in honor. 
He will abuse no power. He'll misuse no wealth. He will do good with might. He will respond rightly to and is worthy of honor and glory and blessing. And if you notice seven items there, that points to the complete nature of the Lamb. So we need to get this image in our minds, this multitude, this myriad of people. Church, this is our future home. This is home for us. And home for us means that we get to join in with the multitude in praising Jesus. Revelation 5.13, we see that all creation exists for God's glory. All these creatures in heaven and earth, under the earth, into the sea, all proclaiming to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be what? Be blessing be honor and glory and might forever and ever. All creation exists to proclaim his worth. The birds, fish, cattle, bears, centipedes, mosquitoes, fill in the blank. Everything giving praise to the one who sits on the throne forever and ever. This massive worship celebration by the heavenly host and the creatures of the world All this is taking place not because it's just the fun thing to do. It's taking place because Jesus has taken the reins of history. Jesus has conquered. Jesus takes the scroll here. And it's like the 80s dance party we had last night, but so much better. Jesus takes the scroll And the myriad and myriad and thousands upon thousands of saints joining in with the song, they burst into celebration. So church, have we ever truly thought of the fact that Jesus is in control of the way our lives will turn out? Maybe our kids, I don't have kids yet, but I imagine one day I'll have to put my trust that Jesus will will take care of my kids. Our marriage our job, our anything else. This is good news, church. This is the lamb who is worthy to open the scroll. He is sovereign and he knows all things. We can join in this worship celebration because there is no better way for the world to be under the control of Jesus. Jesus is God and he is the one we worship. He is the only worthy object of our absolute affection. And as we see here in the passage, just as the hosts of heaven never lose sight of the fact that he is the lamb who is slain, I pray that we never lose our vision. We never have our vision blurred by anything. May we too, by the grace of God, keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. So in conclusion, I pray that our gatherings here at Abner Creek are a reflection of what we see here in this passage. The song of the Lamb, the song that we see here in Revelation 4 and 5, this is a song worth singing. And it's a song worth singing for all eternity. We anticipate the day, church, and we, we sing songs about this. I think it's good that we sing songs about waiting for that day. We, we await the day, we anticipate the day when we are freed from sinning and we will 
will see him face to face. Our gathering should truly be a glimpse of glory. Seeing, singing, savoring, delighting in, rejoicing in the Lamb who is worthy to take the scroll. Jesus truly is the means by which we can worship. The content of how we worship. And he is the only object of our worship. This reminds us of a a song that we sing. One of the last verses. On that day when freed from sinning, I shall see his lovely face. Full arrayed in blood washed linen, how I'll sing thy sovereign grace. Come, my Lord, No longer tarry, bring your promises to pass. For I know your power will keep me till I'm home with thee at last. Thankfully, we don't have to ponder on the question, what would our life be like without Jesus? We don't have to think about that for too long at all. For here in this passage, we see that Jesus has taken control. He is sovereign over all things. So church, let that be our personal assurance and let that be our corporate creed together. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this picture that we get to see here in Revelation 5. I thank you for the fact that we come rejoicing in your gracious gospel. Indeed, worthy are you to take the scroll. And Jesus, as we respond to your greatness here in just a moment, may we respond truly by saying, oh God, be my everything. Be my delight. Jesus, be what my soul is completely and totally satisfied in. We ask this in your perfect and holy name. Amen. Church, now we're going to lead into a time where we get to respond to what we've heard. And this is been a message to remind us what our worship gathering should be like. But there is a call here. If you do not believe on the name of Jesus, if you haven't placed your full assurance and trust in Jesus, to cling to him. Jesus is the only one who lived perfectly. Jesus is the one who fully obeyed God and His demands. Jesus took the punishment that we deserved. So if you haven't yet believed on the name of Jesus, I encourage you to call upon the name of the Lord. And scripture says, when you call upon the name of the Lord, you shall be saved. So church, as we turn to a time of singing, I'll be down here, Scott will be down here. And let's respond with hearts, that are glad in the fact that there is one who is worthy. There is one who is worthy to take control of the reins of history. And that's good news to us. That's good news to me. 
because that means he's in control of my life. That he is sovereign over all things and that I can trust fully in him because he has completed the This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.